It's Wednesday, November 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The plot thickens in the ongoing Russia probe by special counsel Robert Mueller. First, Mueller accused Paul Manafort of lying to the FBI after he made a plea deal. Then a report out of the Guardian newspaper said that Manafort held secret talks with Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy before WikiLeaks published a stash of Democratic emails stolen by Russian intelligence officers. Shannon Vavra, reporter for Axios, joins us for the latest bad news for Paul Manafort. Next, the CDC says it's okay to start eating romaine lettuce again, as long as it's not from the central and northern coastal growing regions of California. So far, 43 people in 12 states have gotten sick from E. coli-contaminated romaine lettuce. Teresa Tampkins, health editor for BuzzFeed News, joins us for the latest from the CDC and why contaminated water is often the source of all the problems. Finally, after things have settled down with the California wildfires, a light is shining on the little-known business of private firefighters. Some have hired private crews to protect their houses, but the majority of private fire crews work on behalf of insurance companies. Hannah Fry, reporter for the LA Times, joins us to talk about the business of private firefighters and how getting a new homeowner's insurance policy could get you their services. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The president has had uh, Robert Mueller doing his job for the last two years, and um, he could have taken action at any point, and he hasn't. So we'll let, that, we'll let that speak to itself. He has no intent to do anything. Joining us now is Shannon Vavra, reporter for Axios. Let's talk about Paul Manafort. There were some interesting things that came out from Robert Mueller. First off, they accused him of lying to the FBI after he made that plea agreement. And they said that they're going to be publishing some type of document detailing all the crimes and lies that he has committed. So what do we know about the latest on that? The details are that the Mueller team has said that they want to move forward with a sentencing date for Manafort now that they've said that he's repeatedly lied to federal investigators and the Mueller team itself. And what that means is when that sentencing detailing comes out, it's possible that that information will become public. And that's really intriguing to me as a reporter and probably to the American public because that means that some of the details of this investigation and the contents of it, where its focus lies, at least as it pertains to Paul Manafort, could become public. And that, that could provide insight into how far along the investigation is. So we don't know the details of what he had been lying to the FBI about, but it also could have to do with the other detail that came out that the Guardian newspaper had reported that Paul Manafort had secret talks with Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. The details were murky on what exactly he lied about. All we know is that there were several lies about various subjects. And it's possible that we don't know if this is related to the Guardian's reporting that he met several times with Julian Assange over several years in London. But it's also worth noting that Manafort came out on Tuesday and said this story is false. This never happened. I did not meet with Assange like indirectly or directly, didn't contact him, he didn't contact me. And Assange and WikiLeaks have also come out and said that. And given the fact that we also know that Manafort has lied to federal investigators, at least as Mueller is characterizing it, that might not necessarily hold a lot of weight anymore with the feds, with the public, with the media. So he's walking a tight rope here moving forward. What was in that report from The Guardian? Because a lot of people are saying that this could cause, obviously, a lot more problems for Paul Manafort. And some of the timeline kind of meshes with when he came on board in the in the Trump campaign. And it all has to do with the hacked emails that the Russians got their hands on and that WikiLeaks distributed. 
breaking it down, The Guardian reported that Paul Manafort met at least three times with Julian Assange from 2013, 2015, and then the particularly interesting meeting is the one in 2016 in March. And it's worth noting that based on The Guardian's reporting, the intelligence document that they said that they have access to said that it was tentatively in March. But the reason that date is so interesting is because that's right around the time when John Podesta's emails were hacked, which Hillary Clinton ascribes as as part of her defeat in the 2016 presidential election. And let's say that these meetings did happen, despite all of these negations coming from Paul Manafort and Assange. That's a very interesting moment to look at because that could tell us whether Mueller is looking at that in terms of whether or not the Trump campaign was aware of these kinds of leaks and hacking to come, whether there was coordination or encouragement. And so that's going to be key moving forward. And in terms of whether we'll have more details on that, Paul Manafort has said they're considering legal action against the Guardian. So there may be more details coming out on that in the next couple of weeks. Some of the reporting from The Guardian, it's kind of funny how detailed they get. They said that a separate internal document written by Ecuador's intelligence agency said that some people that had been there were Paul Manafort. Uh, He was among several well-known guests. It also mentions, quote unquote, Russians. They said that in his 2016 visit to Assange, it lasted about 40 minutes and that he was casually dressed wearing sandy colored chinos a cardigan and a light colored shirt. But some of the problems also come in is that normally these people register with embassy security guards. When they get there, they show their passports and sources in Ecuador say that Paul Manafort was not logged for some of that time. If you are visiting an embassy, you're absolutely logging in. I myself used to intern at an embassy, a U.S. embassy abroad. So I'm very familiar with that process, at least as it pertains to the U.S. side of things. And if these meetings did happen in an official capacity, there absolutely would be proof of it or record of it in some way. And even from the U.K. side of things, the U.K. intel community is really adept at keeping track of folks in their country and outside of their country, not to mention Assange, who they've been keeping almost constant record of, at least as has been reported in the media. So if there's record of that, it's unclear if that'll come out. MI5 and MI6 can be pretty tight-lipped on those things as they want to be. But if there are details, to come out, that would be somewhere to keep an eye on. Yeah, The Guardian also brings in the uh, dossier that was written by Christopher Steele and just says that from that dossier, Manafort was at the center of a well-developed conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russians. And as we were kind of been just saying, talking about, you know, all of this, the timeline is a little murky, but all of it kind of coincides with the release of all those emails that the Russians hacked. So, I mean, it could spell a lot of problems and it'll be interesting to see what Mueller's team puts out there as far as these other crimes and lies that Paul Manafort has been lying about to the FBI the whole time. And that's something that is important to remember, too, is that a lot of folks now are saying the the fact that Manafort has been lying to federal investigators and the fact that Mueller's team has called off the plea agreement and that potentially puts in, in jeopardy some of the things that Manafort may have previously told Mueller's team. We have to keep in mind that Mueller's team has probably and almost definitely weighed that consequence. It's possible that they're, if they're willing to go around and prove that Manafort is lying, they'll likely have evidence that's strong enough, if not stronger, than what they could gain from Manafort to say and pinpoint that Manafort was lying in certain cases. And the government worked really hard to get Manafort to be a cooperating witness. So my assumption and my, my gut feeling here is that they're not taking this lightly. Shannon Vavra, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. 
They know now that it's in the central and northern coastal growing regions. They do know enough to say that certain types of romaine are relatively safe or thought to be safe. So if it says on the label that it's grown in Florida or Mexico or Yuma, Arizona, and even different parts of California, then it is safe for consumption. Joining us now is Teresa Tampkins, health editor at BuzzFeed News. We're in an ongoing outbreak of E. coli-related illnesses that are linked to romaine lettuce. So far, 43 people in 12 states have gotten sick. The CDC last week cautioned people not to eat romaine lettuce at all because we didn't know exactly where the contamination started, where all this stuff was coming from. They did say now that they traced it down to the central and northern coastal growing regions in California. So if you know that it's coming from there, don't eat it. What else do we know about what's going on with the with the E. coli contamination? They know now that it's in the central and northern coastal growing regions, but they don't know exactly what farms or where or what distributor. They do know enough to say that certain types of romaine are relatively safe or thought to be safe. So if it says on the label that it's grown in Florida or Mexico or Yuma, Arizona, and even different parts of California, then it is safe for consumption. And the tricky part is identifying where that growing region is. I mean, I know that they're going to be implementing some new labeling changes on all of these leafy greens so that you can know where it was grown and when it was harvested. And they're hoping that that will make it easier to track. And then when things like this happen this and the CDC issues these types of warnings, they can uh, be very specific and say, hey, it's from this area. As long as it's not labeled with that, you're good to go. Yeah, that is correct. That's the tough part. They can say don't buy romaine from this part of California, but often the label doesn't say that. So it can be really hard to tell. So the Food and Drug Administration actually just came out with an announcement that they've been working with the industry for this increased labeling. There's no clear date yet when those are going to take place. If you go to the grocery store right now, it may not have that information on there, but they're working closely with them to get growing region and the date when it was harvested so that they can keep an eye on that and track these kinds of outbreaks and give people better advice on what to buy or not to buy. A lot of the crazy part of this, you know, we've said 43 people in 12 states have gotten sick so far. 16 of those have required hospitalization. Part of the difficulty is, is that sometimes symptoms don't present themselves till a couple of days, maybe eight days later after you've eaten this stuff. So even in your mind, it's hard to even remember what you ate yesterday, possibly sometimes. So to trace it down to, oh man, I'm sick because I ate that salad, that Caesar salad or something like that. That's another difficulty in finding out where the source of these things come from. Yeah, that is definitely true. This is a sort of a longer lag time than the normal type of food poisoning that you get. If you have E. coli, you're going to get severe cramps. You might have vomiting. The dangerous part about this type of E. coli is it carries something called shigatoxin. And this shigatoxin causes much more dramatic symptoms than your regular food poisoning. It can cause bloody diarrhea and it can cause much more a severe side effect called hemolytic uremic syndrome, which is what is really dangerous and can lead to kidney failure. And, and no one has died in this outbreak, but there was one earlier this year in which five people died. A total of more than 200 people in 36 states got sick in the spring and early summer with a romaine lettuce-linked E. coli outbreak. It's unrelated to this outbreak. There are two different types of E. coli, but it can be really dangerous. Let's talk a little bit about that one real quick. These two are unrelated, but in mm. that case, they said that the leading cause they think was contaminated water that was used to irrigate the farm there where the lettuce was being grown. 
And that seems to be a problem in a lot of these types of issues is contaminated water. Farmers will get it from a well or a spring nearby and just use it directly to irrigate the farm. And if it's contaminated, that's where things start going wrong. I, I guess it soaks up into the roots and then that's how they get contaminated with the E. coli and other pathogens. Yeah, definitely contaminated water can be a risk. They haven't announced yet and they haven't pinned down yet in this particular outbreak what's going on. But these growing regions in both Arizona and California and other parts of the world are also cattle country. And E. coli is a type of bacteria that's found in gastrointestinal tracts in humans and in cattle and in poultry. And if you have cattle waste and they're carrying this particular type of dangerous E. coli and it gets into the groundwater and you use groundwater to irrigate crops, you can end up with this type of contamination, this kind of outbreak. And because you don't cook something like a fresh lettuce, then you're more likely to get sick. In 2011, there was this big food safety legislation that was passed and it called for a lot of growers to test their irrigation water for these types of things. That was in 2011, but things have been postponed now for so long that they're really, to be compliant with this, doesn't even start until 2022. For larger farms, smaller farms, maybe 2024. So, I mean, this is a long time coming and these things have kept being delayed. Yeah, I think it's a real problem. I mean, it's very difficult when you have these types of large outbreaks so far with these cases. There have been some in California, some in New York. Now that produce is grown and shipped all over the country, all over the world, it can be hard to trace this down. And so getting this at the source is probably the best thing to do. But it also is a very difficult problem because it's a very common type of bacteria. Teresa Tampkins, health editor at BuzzFeed News. Thanks for very much for joining us. Thank you. private companies and these insurance companies really are dispatching private crews to save homes because it's more expensive to replace it and all of its contents. So there's definitely a benefit for these companies, especially as these wildfires get worse and the claims are going up. Joining us now is Hannah Fry, reporter for the LA Times. We had been talking a lot about the wildfires that were going on in California, specifically in the state. They've been experiencing two years of wildfires that have left more than 20,000 homes destroyed. A lot of people have died because of it. And out of that, something is coming a little clearer. The private firefighting business is booming. It's been around for some time, but most of what these people do, they work independently from county firefighters. Their job is to protect specific homes that are under contract with a lot of insurance companies that they work for Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. They were receiving a lot of flack. They were thanking firefighters for helping save their house. They had hired a private firefighting company just to kind of protect. There was a park by their house that caught fire. They wanted to make sure that their house didn't catch fire because then possibly the rest of the neighborhood could have caught on fire. So they received a lot of flack. But like I said, it's shedding a lot of light on this private firefighter business. What, what else do we know about this? Really what we know at this point is that this business has been around for about 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, but it's really becoming the into the forefront now as these wildfires are getting much worse. There's two different groups. There's private firefighters that are hired and deployed by insurance companies. And then there are other private firefighters that are actually hired by homeowners to protect specific homes. The ones that are hired by the insurance companies make up the biggest segment of these private firefighting companies. They're contracted with about 12 different insurers around the country that offer this as part of their homeowner's insurance policy. So there's been a lot of blowback on both sides. And some of the people that run these companies say, well, you know, we're not just servicing rich people only. You should look for an insurance company that offers this as part of your homeowner's insurance. 
a lot of what has been going around about this issue is that they were serving, you know, the ultra wealthy and there was a disparity that normal middle class people couldn't afford to have private firefighters protect their homes. So I think that was the point of contention really in this whole discussion. But during my research, what I found was that these companies that provide these resources say, you know, we, we do this not only for our wealthier clients, but also for just normal families. And it makes sense for the insurance company and even for the homeowners at the tail end of 2017 with all the fires that happened, they reached nearly $12 billion in insurance claims that made last year's fire season the costliest on record until what happened this year. It's possible that it's going to go up even higher than that. That's exactly what I found in my research, that these private companies and these insurance companies really are dispatching private crews to save homes because it's more expensive to replace it and all of its contents. So there's definitely a benefit for these companies, especially as these wildfires get worse and the claims are going up. How much do these policies cost throughout the article and a few other articles I've seen that AIG, USAA, Chubb, all of these insurance companies have some of these policies available to customers that are in fire-prone areas, but how much would these run? You know, it really depends on the insured value of a home. So it can range anywhere from several thousand dollars to several tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the insured value of the home. And when they're dispatched, what are they doing? I mean, they're going to specific addresses, obviously things that are covered under the insurance policies. If a fire is coming, they'll try to douse the flames. If there's no fire there yet, they spray a lot of the fire retardant just uh, as a preventative measure? I mean, that's mostly what they're doing, right? Yes, they're mostly doing preventative work before the fire reaches the property. Once the fire's right there, there's very little that can be done except for, you know, maybe spray some water to try to douse flames. But really the bulk of their work is removing brush from around the home that could catch fire or spraying fire retardant on a home that has flames approaching to try to protect and create sort of a, one source described it to me as like a water bubble around a home. So if an ember does fall on a roof, it won't immediately ignite. One of the main companies is called Wildfire Defense Systems. They operate in about 18 states. They obviously have a presence in California. How big are their resources? The fires that just broke out, the Wolseley Hill and the Camp Fires, they had about 100 firefighters, I think of a little bit more, dispatched to all three. From what I can tell, their resources seem pretty significant. How has this fared with county firefighters, people that aren't these private services? There has to be some type of coordination running between them, but what's that reaction been like? County firefighters, they have an issue with these private groups, mostly because they say that they don't check in, you know, they don't tell them where they're going to be, and it could possibly create a liability for them. Now, CAL FIRE officials, they're a little bit more used to these private crews. They see them a lot as long as they work with them. From what I've heard, they're pretty much okay. But really, these county crews are a little more hesitant to have them in the field just because they could present a life safety issue if they need to be rescued. The big takeaway is that while, yes, homeowners in wealthier areas might have this as part of their insurance policies, if you're in a fire-prone area, there is a good chance that your homeowner's insurance could cover some of this stuff. Or as the president of a wildfire defense system says, if you don't have it, look for an insurer that carries some of this stuff. This is available on a larger scale than more people might think. You know, a lot of people don't realize that the service is available and often people that have it forget that they have it. It's not even something that you call in. Wildfire Defense Systems has a like a dispatch center where they actively monitor fires that break out, much like a traditional fire service would do. Wow. As Jerry Brown had said, this is the new normal, and we've seen it the past few years. The amount of fires, the destruction that the fires cause is growing. It 
just seems like they'd put more resources behind this as well. Hannah Fry, reporter for the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.